I want to talk about dealing with sin in our lives. On Wednesday, we kind of focused on becoming like Christ. And we said, first of all, that becoming like Christ means living to the glory of God because that's what He lived for. And I want to take it a step further if I can today and and just remind you that another characteristic of Christ was not only that he did the will of God for the glory of God, but that he was absolutely holy and without sin. The Bible makes that very clear. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, says the writer of Hebrews. There was in him no iniquity. There was in him no capability of iniquity or sin because he was holy God. And if we're going to pattern our lives after the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's absolutely imperative that we pursue holiness. And pursuing holiness is a positive thing on the one hand. We want to do what's right. We want to seek God's glory. But it's a negative thing on the other hand, and that's what Jerry was singing about. It means confessing sin. It means acknowledging sin. It means repenting. And so today I want to talk about that, but before I do, I just want to mention uh, the need of a fellow student of ours. Uh, we want to have just a word of prayer as we start for one of our students, Lauren Jones, and her family. She received word this past week that her father had passed away. I think 3 o'clock in the morning she got the word and uh, had to fly out on, on Thursday morning to be with her family. And I know right at this time in the loss of her father and all that's going on in that family they'll really appreciate our prayers um, he knew the Lord so he's with the Lord but it's still a very difficult time so as we come to our time of sharing in God God's Word let's bow together in a word of prayer and we'll we'll remember Lauren and her family we thank you father that we have the hope of heaven that because Jesus lives we will live also we thank you that Jesus said I am the resurrection and the life he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. We thank you that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We thank you that we have the hope of heaven, the, the confident hope that gives us endurance in the midst of all the difficulties of this life. We thank you that Lauren's father knew the Son of God and thus has entered into your presence, Father. But we do pray for her and we pray for the remaining members of the family in this time of sadness and sorrow. And, and we ask, Lord, that you would be gracious to them, that you, the God of all comfort, would comfort them. That you would be as near to them as hands and feet, as near as breathing in this time of their loss. And that through it all, even through their tears, their tears somehow might become telescopic in that through them they can discern more clearly your face. So we ask your special blessing on Lauren and her family. And may you be glorified through all that is done in response to this event. We'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. As I said, I, I want to just draw your attention this morning to the, the negative side, if I can, of becoming like Christ. The positive side is pursuing the glory of God, living to, to honor God, doing everything we do, whether we eat or drink, to the glory of God. The other side of it is this matter of pursuing holiness. For Jesus Christ, that was a very normal thing to do because in himself he was holy for us. It is not. It is an abnormal thing to do because our humanity is fallen and sinful. In pursuing holiness, then we must deal honestly and genuinely and op openly 
with our sinfulness. In order to kind of open this up to us a little bit, I want you to take your Bible, and we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study, and I want to begin in Joshua chapter 7, if I may. Joshua chapter 7. Do you remember when the thieves were hanging on either side of the cross and the death of Jesus that one of them was really railing on Jesus, one of them was mocking him, one of them was, um, to put it mildly, being bitterly antagonistic toward him. And the other thief, according to the record of Luke 23:41, responded by saying, Why are you doing this? Then he said this, We indeed suffer justly, but this man has done nothing. Now here was a sinner, a criminal, probably some kind of a terrorist, to put it in today's vernacular, maybe a member of the, the Sicarii who were terrorists who went around stabbing Romans because they didn't like the Roman occupation, maybe the leader of some kind of larger insurrection, uh, some kind of criminal, who knows. But here was a man hanging on a cross who made an open confession to all who could hear, we are getting exactly what we deserve. That kind of honesty, frankly, is lost to our culture. That kind of honest confession, we don't hear today. If a, if, if a contemporary thief were hanging on the cross, he would say, well, you'll have to understand, I, I was abused as a child. Or my mother locked me in a closet full of, um, I don't know, pepperoni pizzas, and uh, I overdosed. And it left me with brain damage. Or you, you don't understand what I've gone through. I had an alcoholic father. and Or, you know, I, somebody gave me bad advice somewhere along in my counseling experience. And Or you might hear someone say, well, after all, what, what are you, who are you to judge whether what I did is right or wrong? Aren't we all entitled to do whatever we want? It's a very rare thing in a society like ours today that anybody stands up and says, look, I'm getting exactly what I deserve. And nobody is to blame but me. And yet that is the essence of a genuine heart of repentance. And Jesus looked at that man and said to him, Today you will be with me, where? In paradise. That's the very attitude from which conversion comes. From which repentance unto salvation is generated. It is the acknowledgement and the admission that I have sinned, violated God, and whatever negative circumstances are coming upon me are exactly what I deserve. You remember probably in Northern California, the, the lady, the nurse actually, in a hospital who killed several babies, that she was a, she was a pediatric nurse and she was to be killing the babies. And uh, when they went to court to prosecute her for murder, she claimed some kind of postpartum syndrome, and she won her case. You may remember the Twinkie murderer, the guy who said he killed people, but it was because he had just eaten Twinkies. And that was his defense in court. 
Everybody is so eager to dispossess themselves of any responsibility for what they do. And when you do that, you have no explanation for the chastening of God and the judgment of God in your life. And you can't respond rightly to it. As that is absolutely crucial to bring a person to salvation, it is equally crucial to keep a Christian living a holy life. When I talk about confessing sin and repenting of sin and turning from sin, what I'm talking about is acknowledging the sin that is in me, Acknowledging, secondly, that if God is chastening me, I deserve it. I deserve it. There's a new book out. I think the title of it is, I saw it advertised the other day, When God Doesn't Seem Fair. Let me tell you something. God is fair, right? And if, uh, and God is just. But if he is going to mitigate his justice, it will not be on the side of unkindness, it will be on the side of grace, right? That is to say, if things aren't going well in your life, it isn't because God is not fair, it is because God is fair. And you're getting exactly what you deserve. And if you don't get the full blow of what you deserve, it is because he is gracious. When we talk about dealing with sin in our lives as Christians, and we do what Jerry said, we cry out to God and say, wash me and cleanse me and make me pure. In that should be the admission that whatever has gone wrong to bring me to that point is exactly what I have deserved. Let's look at Joshua chapter 7 and see if we can see this illustrated in a very graphic way. Now, you remember the sin of a man named Achan, if you remember the Bible story. The children of Israel had come into the land of Canaan, which they were to conquer under the plan of God. And you remember they were told when they went into the land, capturing the city of Jericho, which was the first city right there on the north uh, point of the Dead Sea as they were moving into the land of Canaan. Uh, when they conquered Jericho, you remember they were instructed by God not to take any loot, not to steal anything, not to take anything that was there, to leave it. And they would move on to the next place and the next place until they conquered the land. But they weren't to take the spoils of the land. They were not to aggrandize themselves and make themselves wealthy in the process of this conquering. And you remember what happened. They came to the next city in the, in the line of conquerings. It was a city called Ai, two letters, A and I, and they lost the battle. And everybody was scrambling around trying to figure out why in the world they lost the battle. And then it was discovered that a man by the name of Achan had violated the law of God, which said don't take anything. And he had taken a lot of spoil out of Jericho. And it was discovered. He had buried it in the ground in his tent like, you know, God can't see through dirt. He'll never know it's here. Verse 19 then picks the story up in Joshua 7. And then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you. It's a begging tone. I implore you, he says, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now, this is a most interesting approach. He says, if you will confess your sin, if you will acknowledge it openly and publicly, you will glorify God. Now, how in the world can the acknowledgement of sin bring glory to God? 
How can God be glorified through my iniquity? How can God be glorified through my transgression, my trespass, my unholiness, my sin? How does that glorify God? Follow the story in verse 20. We'll find out. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Now notice this. He responds positively. He says, I have sinned. No excuses. Nobody gets the blame but him. And then he recites precisely what he did down to the details. When I saw, verse 21, among the spoil, a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. This is a fortune, by the way. Then I coveted them. Now, you notice, please, he is, uh, he is confessing not only the sin of action, but the sin of attitude. It's a very thorough confession. And I took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Now, this is a, this is a very biblical confession. This is a very honest confession. It's a very straightforward confession. He doesn't hold back any details. I did it. Here's exactly what I did. I did it not only because in and of itself um, I, I wanted those things, but I did it because my attitude was not right in that I was selfish and covetous. So he confesses the, the impulse that led to the act and the attitude of covetousness which was characteristic of his evil heart. And as a result, I did what I did, and this is exactly what I did, and this is where it is, and this is how it's stacked. Very detailed. This is a component of confession that demonstrates the true honesty of the heart when you confess your sin to the Lord and you get very specific about it. If you just glide lightly over the top in a general category, forgive me my sins, the chances are your forgiveness lacks integrity, or your uh, confession, I should say, lacks integrity. Now, but follow what happens in verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. He took it from the tent, brought it to Joshua and all the sons of Israel, and they laid it all out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, took the silver, took the mantle, took the bar of gold, took his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and brought him to the valley of Achor. Now we're going to get into this whole idea of complicity. What we've got here is not just the sin of one man, but the whole family's in on this deal. I mean, they were living in the tent. They knew he had put it there. They were probably helping him collect it. And certainly they were helping him smuggle it out of Jericho and and put it in his tent and of course this is a mobile group of folks so every time they move they're going to have to scoop all this junk up and carry it to the next piece of dirt where they set the tent up so you've got family complicity in this sin everybody's in on this disobedience so they just got them all together and Joshua said in verse 25 why have you troubled us the Lord will trouble you this day and all Israel stoned them with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Achor means trouble. They killed them all. 
You say, what in the world is going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. Listen to this. God had prescribed the death penalty for the crime. Okay? God was going to destroy these people who violated his law. What is going to happen if all of a sudden, in the midst of the camp, this whole family is wiped out by God? And everybody starts asking the question, what happened? What happened? And somebody says, well, it was a supernatural event. God came down from heaven and wiped them out. Somebody's going to say, well, what kind of a God would do that? What kind of a God would kill a man and all his entire family? And what kind of God would do that? Why did he do that? Well, we, we found some stuff in the bottom of his tent, and, 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 and it's obvious that, uh, that it came from, from Jericho, and, 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 and it really seems that he, be, he probably buried And somebody's going to say, wait, wait, wait a minute. How do we know that somebody else didn't steal it and bury it in his tent to hide it? How, how do we know that some single member of his family didn't do that? And, and how do we know that everybody was in on this? And how do we really know the man was guilty? And the real point here is just that, you see. The reason Joshua said, Achan, you confess your sin publicly before everybody was so that when God did what his justice required, nobody could accuse God of being unjust. So, the whole group of people went out and stoned them. And God was glorified. Why? Because he had a proper and holy and pure reaction against sin. And he followed through on the promise of his command to punish anybody who violated his law. This is an illustration of the holiness of God. And at the same time, it is a graphic illustration of the fact that confession of sin is designed not only to purify your heart, but it's designed to free God from any accusation of being unjust when he chastens the deserving sinner. This too is missing in the church today. People don't want to accept responsibility for their lives. They want to pass it off, even Christian people. They're not willing to acknowledge the iniquity in their own life and to say whatever it is that is going wrong in my life is only what I deserve. And at that point, you plead for mercy and grace, which, by the way, Achan never did. Which leaves us with the interesting question, if he had fallen, fallen on his face before God and pled for mercy and grace, would God have kept him alive? Well, certainly God can do that, and... And God has that in his heart because that's precisely the illustration in Matthew 18 of what God did when a man fell on his knees before him there in the parable of the king and the unjust servant. But he didn't ask for mercy and he didn't ask for grace. He received justice. But God could never be accused of being unkind. God could never be accused of being unfair. All we could say about God is God is holy and God is just and when God lays down his law and you violate it, the circumstances are just circumstances that follow. One of the reasons, then, that the Lord calls upon us to confess our sin openly and clearly and specifically is so that we are, when we are chastened for that, not us or anybody else can accuse God of being unjust. And in that sense, God is glorified. That's why confessing your sin glorifies God because it frees him up to chasten you without any thought of impunity against him. It's so typical of 
of us to want to deny responsibility. Adam sinned, right? We all know that, right? Who did he blame? Who did Adam blame? He blamed, no, not Eve. Listen to what he said. Genesis 3.12. The woman you gave me. Who did he blame? God. That's blasphemous. Look, he says, I went to sleep single. I woke up married. I didn't even know what a woman was. There wasn't even such a thing. I didn't ask for a wife. And you picked her. I mean, if you were going to create one, why did you create that one? This is certainly not my fault. It's not as if she was my choice. Just, frankly, it was just cold shock when I woke up in the morning and there she was. Did I ask for her? Did you see me at your throne saying, may I please have a woman? What's a woman? But we still tend to do that. I didn't ask to have the parents I have. I, I certainly didn't ask to be born into the human race. I, I didn't ask to have the influences. I didn't ask to be living in a society where there's so much garbage. I'm overexposed to it all the time. Is it any wonder I sin? I, 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 I didn't ask for this. I mean, if you wanted me to live a holy and pure life, you could have, you know, had me born into a family of all male shepherds in the Gobi Desert, you know. So we want to blame everybody but ourselves for our fallenness. That's typical of human mentality. That's part of depravity. That's part of fallenness. It wants a self-justifying way to exit from its own culpability. But God's free grace is manifested where there is genuine repentance, even though God will still chasten because chastening has a perfecting work. It, it purges and purifies. And we need to learn, folks, that when things don't go well in life, that is not a sign that we haven't learned some kind of gimmick. That isn't a sign that we need a bump in our self-esteem. That's an, that's an indication that God may be chastening us. Certainly, He is putting us through some perfecting trial. And if indeed there's the possibility of sin in our lives, we need to openly, immediately, and thoroughly, and completely confess that, repent of that, so that God is free to chasten us and never be accused of being unkind or unfair. Look at 1 Samuel for a moment. Uh, another illustration of this, 1 Samuel chapter 4, and this is one that I think is so interesting. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, this particular time in Israel's history, they were in this ongoing conflict with the Philistines, actually the people for whom the land of Palestine is named, and uh, were in many ways the rightful possessors of that land. And so uh, here is uh, the nation of Israel sort of taking over their territory and not without a little bit of chagrin on their part. And that leads to conflict, which was rather unending. And so they're engaged in another kind of battle with um, the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And some very fascinating things take place. Um, I, I don't have the time to go into all of these things um, but let's just start in verse 5 of chapter 4 now the Israelites are in a bad situation the Philistines have got them outmanned um, in fact Israel is defeated and they asked the question 
Why did we lose? I mean, aren't we the people of God? Aren't we supposed to knock this land off? Aren't these guys the pagans? Aren't they the black hats, the bad guys? Why do we lose? And somebody says, well, well, God's not here. It's simple. God isn't here. Well, where is he? Well, he's in Shiloh. What do you mean he's in Shiloh? Well, there's this little box. This little box called the Ark of the Covenant. You heard of that? And to them, that was, you know, the residence of God in their thinking. So they said, look, somebody go get the box. Because if we can get that box down here, we'll have God. It's sort of, you know, they're really sort of falling to the level of idolatry in some ways where they associate the, the presence of their God, who is omnipresent, with the location of this little box. Verse 5, it happened as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout. They went, they got a little box, which is a story in and of itself. And everybody shouts, God is here, God is here, we'll win, we're invincible. The whole earth resounds with this cry. Verse 6, and the Philistines heard it. It would be like some stadium erupting. And the Philistines aren't that far away, and they hear this tremendous noise of shouting by these Hebrews. And they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. They got their spies, and so somebody said, look, God showed up. Now, they know about this little box, and they know about this God, because the Philistines immediately, in verse 7, are afraid. And they said, God has come into the camp. Woe to us. For nothing like this has happened before. Say, so, well, what the, why is the panic here? Woe to us, verse 8. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? Well, what are they talking about? Well, they remember, these are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. We know about this God who's identified with this little box and whatever other deities they assumed went along with him. We know the story, boy. I mean, it had traveled. Word of mouth. The horror of what happened in Egypt and the plagues and the death of the firstborn and the opening of the sea and the drowning of the entire Egyptian army. I mean, that stuff travels fast. They said, we're in some deep trouble if, if their gods have arrived. And somebody gave a speech, take courage and be men, O Philistines. This is the coach giving the pep talk. Lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you, therefore be men and fight. Get in there. This is, the, this is the halftime talk. We've won the first half, guys. Go out and don't be worried about the second half. Take courage and be men, O Philistines. Well, the pep talk was effective. Verse 10, the Philistines fought, and you know what happened? Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent. Now, that's not what you want to see. Your army running back home. And the slaughter was very great, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. I mean, that's a major slaughter, folks. 30,000 people literally died in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And we're not talking about some bombs exploding. We're talking about one person being killed at a time by one other person with one weapon. This, the, the, the level of this intensity in fighting is mind-boggling. And then the worst thing, look what happened in verse 11. And the ark of God was taken... I mean, not only did they lose, but they stole God. The Philistines took God. And if that's not enough, 
The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died, which was no big loss. Now, we got some major confusion. Not only did they lose, but the Philistines stole God. God wasn't going to come to the rescue of people who treated him as if he were some kind of idol, some kind of token, some kind of symbol. They were not devoted to God. Their hearts were not right. And God was not going to be a utilitarian genie and have them rub the magic lamp and he jump out and say anything you want. And so they lost. But if you think that was a problem for Israel, the big problem was for the Philistines. Because now, guess who they've got? God. That's serious. Chapter 5. By the way, Eli died too, the high priest, and that was no big loss. You know what he died? Somebody came and said they stole the ark of God. And it shocked him so much he fell over and broke his neck and killed himself. He was so fat. And all kinds of things came out of it. His daughter-in-law was pregnant, about to give birth. When she heard the news, she died. Or she kneeled down, rather, and gave birth. And then in the next verse, it talks about her death. So all kinds of repercussions. People are falling over, breaking their neck, and dying, and having babies, and everything. The whole place is in a panic because they've got God. And as I said, if you think it's bad for Israel, you haven't seen anything. Think how bad it is for the Philistines. Now, what are they going to do with the Ark of God? Chapter 5, verse 1. The Philistines took the Ark of God. And you can be sure they weren't carrying it the way it was supposed to be carried by Kohathites on poles through the rings. Uh, they were just kind of throwing it up on here and over on there and defiling it and all this. It was the symbol of God's presence and covenant. The Philistines took the Ark of God and they did with it, I suppose, what they thought they should do. They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now we get a little geographical lesson of, of the land of the Philistines. So they take it from the place called Ebenezer to the place called Ashdod. And the reason is because the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. You say, well, who is Dagon? Well, Dagon was, a, was what I call a reverse mermaid. A mermaid is a pretty girl with a bottom half like a fish. Dagon was a fish head with the bottom half of a man. And that was their god. They were a sea coast people, and Dagon was this fish god. The lower part of the god was, was a man, the idol, and the upper part was a great big fish head. And so they thought, well, now we got a temple and we got our god there, so we'll just put this, this idol, which isn't nearly as interesting as ours, although it was a marvelous curiosity with the cherubim and their wings spreading over the top of it. And they said, we'll just put it over there where we've got our own idol and put it next to Dagon. So they did. Verse 3. When the people in Ashdod rose early the next morning, they went back to the temple, which they would do daily to go worship Dagon. Well, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground and was now bowing before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him on his feet again, put him in his place. Somebody probably said, well, how, how did that happen? Well, it was sort of a localized earthquake and he just kind of went over and so they put him back up. Verse 4 says, when they came back the next morning, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord again. Only this time his head and both the palms of his hands were cut off. 
this time he's dismembered. So here's their idol bent over, the head chopped off, the hands chopped off, and nothing left but the trunk. Now, you know what the result of that was? Verse 5. Neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. You know what? Nobody worshipped him anymore. Well, why do, you want to, why do you want to worship a loser? They knew he had gotten into conflict with whatever God is represented in the box, and he lost. So Dagon worship went out quick. Now all that's left is God, and God starts to act. And he acts in a most incredible way, verse 6. He ravages the people, and it says he smote them with tumors. Now, some of the older translations say hemorrhoids. It's a poor translation. Uh, it's not hemorrhoids. He smote them with some kind of tumors, some kind of cancers, some kinds of growths. And God just started plaguing the people with this everywhere. And the people know what's going on. Their, their God has lost in a conflict on a supernatural level. And now they're all getting hit with this plague. Verse 7 says, when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, they had a meeting, town council comes together, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon, our God. They had a committee meeting and decided we've got to get rid of this box, which is good thinking. So you know what they did? They sent it to Gath, the next town up the coast. Famous guy came from Gath. You remember who he was? Goliath. So they said, send that deal to Gath. Get it out of town. So they brought the ark of God to Gath. And verse 9 says, it came about that after they had brought it there, the hand of the Lord was against the city in very great confusion. He smote the men of the city with tumors, tumors breaking out all over them. So they said, get rid of that thing. They sent it to Ekron. The ark of the Lord came to Ekron. Verse 10, the Ekronites cried out, saying, they brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. See, they got a problem. And what we find out here is something else was going on, too. Rats, mice, were carrying a deadly plague through all these cities, and people were dying from the plague, and the people who didn't die from the plague got the tumors. Thousands of people dying and hit with tumors. So, verse 11, they sent, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Take it back where you got it, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who, who didn't die, that is, from the plagues, were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now, what are they going to say? All right? Now, follow this. The cry went to heaven. Thousands and thousands of people dying like the bubonic plague, the black death that swept across tens and hundreds of thousands in Europe. Nothing can stop it. And then the rest of the people who aren't hit with the plague, I got tumors all over everywhere. And they cry to heaven. What do you think they said? We curse you, God. That's what they say in the book of Revelation. What kind of a God are you? What kind of a wicked, vicious, evil, unkind, merciless, graceless, unloving God are you? Why in the world would you ever treat us like this? What have we ever done to you? Why are you like this? Is that what they say? Are they shaking their fist in the hand of God? And are they crying out, God isn't fair and God isn't just? And what kind of a God are you? Look at chapter 6 and we'll find out what they say. 
Now, the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, How shall we, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? What are we going to do to send it back? How do we get it back? Nobody wants to touch it. Nobody wants to go near it. And they said, here's the way. If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it empty. Return to him a what? A guilt offering. Boy, that is so profound. Return to God a guilt offering. What are you saying? Recognize that the reason the stuff is happening is because you have somehow sinned against him. So that what is going on is exactly what you deserve. Admit that you have violated this God. And by the way, they had, if on no other basis than on the basis of Romans chapter 1, when they knew the true God, they glorified Him not as God, but made their idols. So don't send it back empty. Send it back with an admission that the reason this stuff is happening is not because God is unjust, but because you have violated him. And somebody could have said, oh, give me a break. I mean, we don't even know about this God. We don't know about his scriptures. We don't know what the rules of that deal are. I mean, how can he hold us responsible? We're just blind, ignorant pagans up here in Philistia. We have nothing to do with that God. I mean, how, is this his way of, of trying to build a reputation for himself? This isn't exactly a winsome approach to the, to the lost. I mean, what kind of evangelism it is, is it to all of a sudden assault all the pagans with death and tumors? Not a seeker-friendly deity, is he? Somebody could have given that speech, but nobody did. They said, take back a guilt offering, and then you'll be healed, and it'll be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said in verse 4 what it's going to be. Well, take five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. There must have been five of them. For one plague was on all of you and on your lords. And make a likeness of your tumor and a likeness of the mice that ravaged the land, and make them out of gold, a golden a mouse and a gold tumor. And give it to the Lord. And that was a traditional, typical, ancient, Middle Eastern votive offering by which the people would demonstrate to a deity that they knew they had whatever was wrong with them in their body or whatever was going on was a direct violation of that God. And they wanted him to know they knew that so they would take him a replica that would make it clear. This summer, again, we were in Corinth in the temple of Escalapius. We went into the little inner room. If you know somebody there, you can get the key and go in there where they have all the votive offerings, all the parts of the human anatomy and so forth are in there. And they've been they were brought to Escalapius, the God of healing. And the reason they brought those pieces made out of terracotta, made out of clay, was to show the deity that they recognized that the tumor in their leg or wherever it might have been on their body, their nose, their ear or whatever it might have been was because they sinned against the deity. And they would put that votive offering in front of the deity so he would know they were dead serious about acknowledging their sin and their violation of that God. And this is the pattern here. And then verse five. Make likenesses of the tumors and likenesses of the mice that ravage the land, and you will give glory to the God of Israel. See, God is glorified again. God is glorified when we acknowledge his justice in chastening and punishing us. Young people, I just emphasize this this morning because there's so much that can be said about confession and repentance and forgiveness. 
But this one very important component is at the foundation of all of it. And that is this. If I am going to keep my relationship to God what it ought to be, if I'm going to be like Jesus Christ, then I must pursue holiness. The pursuit of holiness involves the fact that I recognize that any sin in my life is my fault and anything God does to chasten me or bring trials or troubles or difficulty in my life should not ever make me question him. It should make me question me. And it should drive me to the place where I acknowledge my sin. Even the witless pagans knew that. And they're far ahead of people today. Even us, who so easily and readily make excuses for our sins. When you go before the Lord, acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that it's purely and only your sin. Acknowledge to God that you want it removed and that you are sorry for the offense, but that any chastening he has brought into your life is absolutely and truly what you deserve. And then you will glorify God in the chastening process because you'll free him from some accusation that he's unjust and you won't do disservice to his reputation. Furthermore, in that chastening process, as you accept the fact that you deserve it, you will find God's remedial perfecting hand. Peter put it this way, after you've suffered a while, the Lord make you perfect. In Hebrews, it says the chastening for the present seems grievous, but it has a work of making us holy. This is absolutely basic to our Christian living. Nehemiah when he was praying in chapter 9 and verse 33, said, God, you are just in all that is brought upon us. We've gotten exactly what we deserve. Do you remember the prodigal son who came home? Do you remember what he said? Hey, Dad, I'm back. I want you to know if things need to change around here. It's coming, some of the stuff that you did that drove me away the first time. So I, I just want to get some ground real straight. Is that what he said? came back and what did he say? I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And I am not worthy to be one of your hired servants. But would you please accept me back? That's a broken and a contrite heart. That's the essence of a true repentance. He didn't say, boy, dad, if you'd have made this house something different, I wouldn't have had to spend the last few years in the pig slop. No. Genesis 41.9, the chief butler said to Pharaoh, or the chief butler rather to Pharaoh said, I do remember my sins this day. Saul said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, I have sinned, I have truly transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Daniel says, I have sinned against the Lord. Daniel says in chapter 9, I was Speaking and praying and confessing my sin. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Peter says, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. The, the 
the penitent publican in Luke 18 says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Paul says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am what? Chief, foremost. Confessing sin is all about coming to grips with your own fallenness and your own sinfulness and taking responsibility for it and knowing that God is going to chasten to lead you out of that sin. But part, the part you have to play is the recognition that the chastening is God's good gift to conform you to the holiness of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for our, our time this morning to consider this. So many important things that come to mind in regard to this, but our time is limited. And we, we just want you to know that it is our desire, Lord, to keep an open book with you in terms of confessing our sin. We want to be like Christ. We want to be made in his image, even now, as much as is humanly possible. We want to live to glorify you as he lived to glorify you. We want to manifest his holiness. And that means we've got to acknowledge our sin. We've got to accept the real diagnosis and the cure if we're going to experience the holiness that you long for us to have. Help us to come to grips with the sins of our life and, and to even pray as Jerry in the song did for all of us, saying, wash me, wash me. May we accept the fact, Lord, that through the hardest times of our life, you're doing your most important work of purging us. May we see it for what it is and yield up those sins which bring the chastening that we might step out of that shadow into the sunlight in the place of blessing. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.